0: Welcome to Classics Confidential. This episode is about classics and disability studies. All the interviews in this programme were recorded at a workshop that took place in 2018 at King's College London. The workshop was organised by Dr Ellen Adams, Senior Lecturer in Classical Art and Archaeology at King's College London, and Dr Emma-Jane Graham. Senior Lecturer in Classical Studies at The Open University. And the title of the workshop was The Forgotten Other, Disability Studies
1: and the Classical Body. It's a bit of a chewy title. It takes quite a bit of unpacking, I think. It's it's trying to do too much.
0: That's the voice of Dr Ellen Adams.
1: Uh, But our point was that disability is a minority group, um, a kind of underdog um, category that's been neglected in classical studies. Um, this is being rectified in recent years, but it's it's still an ongoing um, problem we've felt. So it's been forgotten, and the word "other" of the title was in speech marks um, initially, and then they got dropped because we wanted to express that there is anotherness. Um, here, it, there's very, very few disabled people employed in classics departments, and this is this is a problem. So there is, there is an element of studying otherness here, but at the same time, there is a problem with the word other because um, it expresses a feeling of abnormality that it's it's sort of not who we are. And we did want to um, express that, you know, being disabled, having an impairment is entirely normal. Um, it is highly unlikely, unless you die young, that at some point in your life, you're not going to experience a temporary or permanent impairment. Um, hopefully, you will get to enjoy experiencing one, because if you don't, that means that, you know, you, you, you've you um, had your life cut out quite young. Um, and it is a really important part of the human condition. And in order to understand that there's a positive element to all of this, you need to look at disability studies. So we're not just talking about studying disabled people in the ancient world, which people have done very well. We're talking about engaging with an entirely new field um, and discipline to find out The lived experience of having an impairment in the modern world. And and both of us felt that it was very important not just to study disabled people, but to do it in this way. Um, And the title, Disability Studies and the Classical Body, you need classics in there somewhere. And classical body, um, well, it, it, it kind of refers again to the lived experience of people in the ancient world, but it also refers, I think, to the body of work that classics has produced and the legacy of Classics as well so um, you've got quite a lot going on here because Classics really has helped shape our views of disabled people, our other ableist assumptions as well and so we we wanted to see what Classics could give back to disability studies um, in terms of this legacy as well. Now, if you're a regular listener to Classics Confidential, the chances
0: are that you might be coming to this programme feeling more familiar with Classics than with Disability Studies. So let's get some background to that field from one of its founders, Professor Leonard J. Davis.
2: So I'm Leonard Davis. I'm a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the departments of English, Medical Education and Disability, disability Studies, three different departments. Disability Studies is, uh, you know, the study of disability in culture, in history, in politics. Uh, it's, it's like African-American studies, it's like women and gender studies, It just, its object of attention or focus is disability. I, I think a lot of the work of disability studies is to recover lost histories. We've learned that there are dominant histories that tend to, say, give the history of white people in the world, and we're in a moment where, for example, uh, people uh, in the global south, people of color, people of various minorities are saying, what about our history? And there's the work to be done to recover that history, to recover those literary texts, or to recover those objects, or whatever it is that help us understand what the life of people, what, what the full story of people with disabilities is over time. And I should also say people with disabilities and deaf people, because uh, a lot of deaf people don't consider themselves disabled, they consider themselves a, you know, a minority language group. So um, so maybe keep that distinction.
0: Speaking of distinctions, there's been a lot of talk about how far disability is a term that's applicable to the ancient world, so could you summarise your thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, the current use of the word disabled or dis- is a relatively new term. Um, It allies various kinds of people with different impairments, Um, people who in the past might never have thought of themselves as having anything in common. Um, So in the United States, for example, uh, there's laws about disability, I'm sure there is here as well, but that would include someone who was grossly obese or someone with a facial disfigurement. I think in the past, a blind person would never think that they had anything in common with uh, those people, or someone with a mobility impairment, I mean. So there is a. It's a political reality that at a certain point, groups of disabled people, uh, pe- groups of people with impairments, decided that they they would do better in an ensemble rather than separately. I mean, the one group, as I said, the deaf people don't quite uh, see that, but they're not against it necessarily, but they're not. Necessarily defining themselves as disabled, so then if you retroactively apply that to the past, you're obviously applying a new category to the past that like currently doesn't exist. But you could say that is true of a concept like democracy. You know, you can have studies of democracy now, and you could say, let's take a look at democracy in the ancient Greek world. We know that that wasn't the same kind of democracy. So I think the point is you need to use that term with a consciousness that it is partly useful and partly inaccurate.
0: We'll come back to the issue of terminology later in this programme. But first, you might be wondering how far historians or classicists or archaeologists have engaged with this topic already. Is it a relatively new thing to be studying?
1: Ellen Adams. There's been a lot of work done since 1995. Um, Robert Garland's book called The Eye of the Beholder, was the first main monograph that tackled this particular topic. And I found it interesting to note that this was the same year, um, 1995, that the Disability Discrimination Act was passed in the UK. And this introduced the concept of reasonable adjustment. And this is absolutely vital if you are disabled in the UK today because from this point onwards... You were, if you were able-bodied, you were no longer allowed to say, oh, um, I'm sorry if you've got a problem, but it's not mine, and, you know, it's, it's nothing to do with me. From this point onwards, in the workplace, in education, you had to do what you could that was reasonable in order to support um, and alter your behaviour, your environment, to allow this person access. So it did become your business. It became... The social or society's problem to actually make sure that disabled people had the full set of opportunities as everyone else. And this is absolutely vital. And I, I kind of quite like the way his book was called The Eye of the Beholder. Um, and this act, it follows the 1990 um, American version. We were kind of copying them in a sense. But it means that disabled people could no longer be invisible, you could no longer just ignore them. Um, and, yeah, in a very convenient way, that it was your business and you you simply had to deal with it yourself.
0: So that was 1995, and there's been a lot going on since then. Let me introduce Christian Lars now. He's written a monograph and several articles on disability in the Roman world, and he's also edited a volume, Disability in Antiquity which includes the perspectives of the history of medicine, philosophy and philology, gender, law, religion, and much more. At the workshop, he was focusing on the issue that Leonard Davis raised just now of terminology, both the ancient and modern words that we use when we're talking about this topic.
3: I would say that I think we all agree that that the word disability is, of course, a 19th and 20th century term, so we cannot ever just use the word or transpose the word to Antiquity, just as words as as sexuality or homosexuality do not really fit uh, into antiquity. That being said, I I firmly believe that also in antiquity uh, people saw that there were some conditions which were uh, incurable, which were permanent, and which were somehow inhibiting.
0: So what are the ancient Greek and Latin words that are being used here
3: I will start with with, uh, with an example which uh, will be very much recognizable to our uh, to the audience uh, who knows uh, some some Greek because um nowadays in Greek you would say anapiros for the disabled and uh, in antiquity also you have the term anaperos in ancient Greek um, so there are some fragments saying that uh, when you use anaperos so lexicographers in ancient greek would say well that means that uh, in the whole body there is some kind of inhibiting uh, condition and they will also say if you want to specify then you have to say for example anaperos tusophthalmus, which means uh, disabled as concerned the eyes as concerns the eyes And so they have the whole discourse on uh, anapiros is for the whole body. And then uh, you need to specify if you want to say he or she is anapiros in that part of the body. So that comes very close. And the interesting thing is that nowadays Greeks also use the term anapiros for denoting quite the same. Another interesting example for Latin is the difference between morbus and vitium. While morbus would mean... A disease or an illness, a vitium is considered something more permanent, and at the same time, it is said that one can be, in a way, healthy, but still have a vitium, kind of impairment. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is when jurists, Roman jurists, um, are occupying themselves with 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 the theme, because then they will have to talk that morbus is worse than Vitium, and it always comes up in discussions on the selling of slaves. And then function, functionality is something very important. For example, when you buy a young female slave, with the thought of having many slave's children afterwards, and she she turns out to be sterile, would that be a Morbus or a Vitium? jurists will say, depends on the reason, reason why you have bought the slave. If you bought it for procreation, and if she turns out to be sterile, then it's a morbus, it's not a vitium. If you buy a slave to work on the field, and he turns out to be completely mute, then it's only a vitium, because you have bought him to work on the Fields. But if you want to have this slave to, uh, to, to read aloud for you, for example, and afterwards it turns out that, that the seller just cheated you, then, being mute, is a morbus. And the uh, jurists will explicitly say, well, this is different from everyday usage in Latin, because normally well, when you have a cold that would be morbus, not fitium. Yeah? But in the discourse on selling slaves, morbus is rather a thing which is worse and which is inhibiting functioning of the slave.
0: These examples from Christian's work indicate how looking closer at language can give us some really important insights into how ancient impairments were understood and even loosely categorised. But there are many literary texts that don't use these words specifically but still contain information that's useful to scholars who want to understand more about the topic. Professor Edith Hall was at the workshop and she was sharing some thoughts about classical mythology and what these stories can tell us about disability in the Greek world.
4: I'm talking about uh, a very um, abstruse strand in ancient Greek myth but one that has uh, a very unusual message for uh, uh, disability studies relationship with classic because it features uh, three different types of disability amongst supernatural beings and how they cooperate with each other so they actually help each other so we've got Hephaestus who's the smith god whose um, lane almost certainly was understood from the, the paintings as, as being club-footed so congenitally uh, floppy-legged um, But he's got a strange character, a very nice constructive character in myth called Kidalion, who is either um, his accomplice as a smith in his smithy or his mentor who taught him metal work. And he is um, a dwarf. And he's quite clearly so in the um, uh, vase paintings. Um, And the third one is Orion, the mighty hunter god, who uh, is up there as a constellation. Uh, We all know him with his belt with three stars. But he was afflicted with blindness as a punishment for raping or trying to rape someone. Um, And in order to be cured, he was told he had to walk towards the rising sun, but he was blind, so he couldn't see where the rising sun was. So, uh, Hephaestus, being kind-hearted and himself disabled, lent him Orion. He said, you take... Sorry, lent him Kedalion. So he lifted... Kidalion the, the on his shoulders like a little child and um, uh, he was sighted of course, Kedalion's perfectly good vision and he led him towards the rising sun where he was then cured. So you've got this group of three cooperative supernatural beings and, and whether that relates to a reality or not I do not know but this whole myth clusters around a particular island of Lemnos which also there's evidence of some uh, healing cults and medicine on. So it's just very, very intriguing, but a very positive message for uh, only one modern uh, post-Renaissance artist tried to paint them, and that's Poussin. And it's a beautiful picture, a famous picture, and has all three of them in it, in a landscape. And I'm going to try and persuade Ellen that this is what we need for the cover for our book from this conference. The thing that I really noticed this morning was that we, talk, we talked a lot about pain. Um, and how far if at all it's actually kind of culturally relative uh, you know is it what something that just unites us incredibly with all homo sapiens over you know the last 80,000 years um i've always been rather inclined to think that it does i think there are certain things like you know bereavement and grief and childbirth and yeah 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 that 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 get help you that doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't differences in the way that culture represents them, talks about them, pictures them. And as my own works on uh, my original, you know, researches were all on, was on the ancient theatre, I'm particularly interested in the way that pain is reproduced in ancient Greek theatre, which is very interested not just in emotional pain. But phys- physical pain, and we had a very, very productive talk this morning about how actually franker the ancient Greeks were. And I think some—I think I'll be asked about that later. I think some of the doctors here were very interested. They didn't know there was this play called *The Philoctetes*. Also, as it happens, set on that same island, strangely, where, where uh, Hephaestus met his disabled friends, but where Philoctetes, who's been bit had a snake bite that's gone with gangrenous. It's, he needs antibiotics um, is in absolute agony for the entire play and is screaming almost all the way through it intermittently um, and they were very interested because this, you, know, you, couldn't, you can't even do that it would be regarded as almost obscene in a film today to, to, to have quite such an in-your-face um, portrayal of, of agony so I think that we it will help both I think we will all get a lot out of it both ways
0: this notion of representation is absolutely key. What kinds of bodies are considered appropriate or desirable to represent in the visual arts or other media? Edith mentioned the fact that Poussin is the only major artist who's been drawn to the Hephaestus and Cadalian story. So what does this tell us about the preoccupations and preferences of artists as well as their patrons and their public. Professor Michael Squire is a classical art historian based at King's College London, and he presented a session at the workshop together with Professor Leonard Davis, and this was around classical sculpture and its reception in later historical periods.
5: At a conference like this, one of the things classicists are interested in is in the past historically. So um, what disability was right, in a historical context. But the thing about classics, of course, is that it's not always just about the past. It's about the legacy, about the continuation, about the long durée of ideas. And of course, when it comes to the body, the classical has a particular role to play. We're, we're, we're married to um, the classical antiquity for better or for worse so um, what we wanted to do very briefly in in our presentation was was think about some particular case studies um, of classical sculpture that could be considered to be disabled in a way Um, but with which that question of disability has either been overlooked or has been celebrated. So we focused in particular on the Venus de Milo, um, discovered on the Greek island of Milos in the early 1820s. Um, But we were looking at receptions, the um, ways in which that statue has been viewed or received over the last 200 years, um, often overlooking... In in its entirety, the fact that this is a disabled body, a fragmented body—it's a statue without arms, with a broken, uh, chiselled big big toe, and so on and so forth. Um, Often, that sort of disfigurement, if you like, if that's an appropriate term, is entirely forgotten or overlooked. Um, But more recently, so especially from the 1980s onwards, it's been something that's been celebrated. So it's something that's. has been reconfigured by um, a statue like Mark Quinn's Alison Lappo Pregnant, for example, um, to mention just one of the artists um, that that we've talked about today, uh, but been reconfigured to to, um, challenge as much as to celebrate the legacy of the classical bodily ideal.
0: Mark Quinn is one of a number of contemporary artists who have been challenging perceptions of what kind of body you can represent in monumental sculpture, But this is an issue that spans all genres of artistic production and media. Here's Leonard Davis.
2: The main point for me is I would like to get to a point where we have lots of actors with disabilities of various kinds and deaf people in movies, in plays, in television. Um, I think currently now in the US and TV, there's something I like out of about 500 recurring roles in a season. There's something like 10 people with dis- 10 characters with disabilities, of whom maybe a third are played by actors with disabilities. So the, the unfamiliarity of audiences with disabled people makes uh, disability more of an other. And um, so my point is that you know I'd like to see people with disabilities in film where they were, their, their disability didn't mean anything. Because now we're at a point where when a person's disabled in a movie, it has to be part of the plot, it has to be part of the story. As in real life, if somebody walks by you and they're deaf or disabled, it doesn't mean anything. And so the example that I use to highlight that is to say that you know, when someone coughs in a movie, it, or if someone coughs in a movie, or the other thing is if they stumble, like they, they, they miss a step and they have to grab onto a table or a chair, that usually means that they're gonna be dead within a couple of scenes. And so there's a kind of signification that any abnormal bodily act, I mean, if someone sneezes, no one ever sneezes in a movie. Um, No one ever has a cold. And if they do, then it's kind of part of the story. I mean, the famous cold scene is in When Harry Met Sally, I don't know if you remember it, where she's blowing her nose and she's upset. And yeah, but no, normally you don't see people with colds. If someone coughs, they stop the movie. Let's shoot that scene over again. There has to be this kind of like draconian normality in films. And um, so I, that was my point, is that we need to have a situation, I use the example of a pregnant woman also, that it's like, there are lots of pregnant women in the world. Why are they pregnant? Because they're pregnant. But in a movie, you, an actress is never pregnant unless it's built into the plot. So it's just this kind of thing, like films can't tolerate a, much of a deviation from normality without it signifying it, without it being part of the plot. And that's why we need more, a lot more disabled roles and a lot more disabled actors playing those roles.
0: This point about the modern film industry shows how important the issue of representation is today. But it also forces us to recognise just how far our understandings of disability in antiquity have been shaped and limited by the representations that have come down to us. To a very large extent, we're dependent on those artists and writers who mediated disabilities, that is, who chose which bodies to represent and how to represent them. Vast paintings, mythological stories, legal texts, these are all incredibly useful sources, but they also somehow get in the way of the real lived experience of people with disabilities in the past. This is where archaeological evidence has something unique to offer. Stephanie Evelyn Wright is a PhD student at the University of Southampton, and she's been working with skeletal evidence from Roman burials
6: in a nutshell, I use human skeletal remains to uh, research about impairment and disability in southern Roman Britain. So we try and plot the changes uh, experienced by an individual person of their disabled identity over a lifetime as their body changes and their social expectations changes. My perspective on disability is a wee bit different. Uh, I look at disability, or dis ability as I spell it, uh, as something perhaps we all have, an aspect of our identity uh, that reflects our own bodily ability. Uh, And so we could be all placed on this spectrum and it changes a lot over your lifetime. Some of the bones I had were, uh, you can see the extraordinary and the more ordinary aspects of impairment, so you get an awful lot of of fractures, We get an awful lot of back pathology, which are incredibly common, even tooth loss is something I discuss, and an awful lot of people have tooth loss in the past, but it could have had a really significant effect on how people speak, how they eat especially if they lost more than nine biting pairs, I believe the minimum functioning (laughs) dentition is. And some of them did. They did lose a lot. Uh, And then you get the more unusual cases. Um, I discussed yesterday an individual with uh, a really unusual case of Langer-type mesomelic dwarfism. And um, her case presented a really extraordinary opportunity because we know how that impairment develops over a lifetime, we know the stages it goes through at what age and so we were able to map that in relation to her life course and so it would have impacted when she goes through puberty what would puberty be for her. One of the things that comes off in mortuary archaeology when we're talking about it quite a lot is whether a disabled identity uh, impacts someone's burial and um, it's a real mixed bag. So for example, uh, we had one individual that had, was a very unusual burial for that site. Uh, He was buried face down. Uh, He was in a coffin that looked a wee bit too small for him. He was quite crammed in with a little dog. And it was incredibly unusual when everybody else was uh, supine in a coffin with no grave goods at all. Uh, so it was he stood out for me um, and the only thing we could see that potentially might have made him stand out was the fact that he had an amputation just before his death so we infer that perhaps that I could describe it as a disabled corpse this idea of that that had an impact on identity in death or something visually that marked him out that needed some kind of different treatment uh, and I contrast that with what might have happened in life and how much we can see from because we behave very differently when we people die. And for me, like we go, we go to a church. We're not very Christian family, but someday we want to go to church. We wear black. We behave very differently in burial situations. So how much that reflects the day to day is something I explore quite a lot in my PhD.
0: As Stephanie's work shows, using human remains to study disabilities in the remote past isn't easy or straightforward and there are still a lot of unanswered questions and much room to get our interpretations wrong. But for sure it adds an extremely valuable perspective to the scholarship on disability in the ancient world and there are other types of archaeological remains that are relevant too. Dr. Jane Draycott is a lecturer in classics at the University of Glasgow and she's been researching ancient prostheses and assistive technologies.
7: What I'm hoping to do is essentially set out a taxonomy of the different types of prostheses that people used to sort of try and establish which prostheses were thought of more highly than others, which prostheses were more common than others, um, to see if we can really understand, rather than focusing on one particular individual prosthesis, look at a whole different range of them and and sort of understand how they were viewed in society at that time. Interestingly enough, the archaeological evidence actually matches up to the literary evidence really well. So we have references in texts to prosthetic hands, feet, legs, teeth, eyes, hair, and we've actually pretty much got examples of all of those in the archaeological record. Uh, except for eyes I think the rest of them we, we've got so uh, we have um, from tombs from graves usually these have been recovered in where they, they were they were sort of buried or, or interred with with their owner so we, we can see how the, the legs and the feet for example were being worn and were being used they've got wear on them and the bones of the skeletons show That the uh, the the individual was having to sort of compensate in various ways for wearing them. So with the teeth, um, a lot of those were originally found in the mouths of skeletons, but they were they were found in the 19th century, so they've been separated from their original owners. So with those, it's a little bit more uh, there's a little bit more guesswork involved in measuring the teeth and, and measuring the bands and sort of assessing who would have been wearing those and the wigs uh, and hair pieces uh, those those are usually found as well in, in, in very very particular conditions like wet waterlogged conditions or very hot dry conditions but so we, we sort of we can I think we can we can safely say that these are being used fairly broadly across the ancient world even if we do have specific finds from very specific places it really is like a fantastic snapshot into the lives of people that actually are not particularly well attested in the ancient literature we we have some references to people with impairments disabilities but not as many as we think there should be really and they generally aren't speaking for themselves either so when you're actually able to access their prostheses you you really do get uh a direct window into what it was like for them
0: these insights from osteology and archaeology demonstrate how much is to be gained from adopting a truly collaborative and interdisciplinary approach to studying disability in the ancient world we can't expect any one strand of evidence to tell us what it was like to live with a serious impairment in the past but by bringing these things together and considering the contexts we have a much better chance so, things are moving in the right direction, but we still need to add more voices to the conversation, as Professor Tom Shakespeare reminded us.
8: So, I'm Professor Tom Shakespeare, and I'm Professor of Disability Research at the Norwich Medical School, University of East Anglia in Norwich. I'm the last speaker of the day, so I'm going to be slightly humorous, I think. I'm going to talk personally about why I'm interested in uh, uh, the classics and what I've learned. I'll talk about Claudius and uh, Philoctetes as examples from both history and mythology of how um, uh, impairment, substantial impairment, can be valorized or not valorized. And also I'll talk about Aristotle and how um, uh, uh, these ideas from the classics can be useful in our negotiation of contemporary Uh, ethical and and social dilemmas so uh, I'm very inspired by the work of Bernard Williams and he was obviously first and foremost a classicist but he uses the classics to make us think about how to live which is what the best of the classical writers were about anyway. Um, I'm sad that there are a few disabled classicists here I think that the profession, the discipline, needs to be encouraging disabled people with whatever impairment to find their place in the classics. I'm very happy for non-disabled people to explore all of these issues. Not a problem at all. Um, but I warned that imagination is both your most important tool but also your most dangerous one in the sense that you have to reconstruct the past and what this might have signified, but you have to do so not assuming that you know what it must be like to be blind, to be deaf, to be crippled or whatever. One of the things you can do is spend time with disabled people and find out how it is for them and then maybe your imagination about the past might be better. So there's this dialogue between the past and the present I do a lot of research in Africa, so I'm researching agrarian societies with very low levels of health care, low levels of literacy with disabled people. And maybe, just maybe, they will tell us some of the questions which we might be asking of the classical record, the archaeological record, and the, and the classical literature. So I think that we have to be really interdisciplinary. We have to have disabled people and non-disabled people, and we have to be thinking both about the present and the past. And without that sort of rich and very complicated dialogue, I think we'll get stuck in some misconceptions. But I'm really encouraged by the fact that people are thinking about this and coming up with some really challenging questions. I've learnt a lot so far. We all
0: learnt a lot at this workshop. The discussion wasn't always comfortable or easy, but it was definitely rich and complicated. And at the end of the workshop, I asked Ellen Adams what she thought some of the highlights had been, things that had surprised her and things that we
1: all still need to work on. So um, one of the topics that came up in the workshop, which surprised me actually, was the term disability itself um, in two different ways, I think. Um, First of all, there was some concern that the term disability shouldn't be applied to the ancient world because it's anachronistic, as a modern term, and that's absolutely true. And the second concern was that Disability studies itself as a field um, is solely about the modern situation. It's also actually, in fairness, it's about the history of disabled people as well. But it would also be anachronistic or unhelpful to try and um, map this onto the ancient world as well. I, I, I guess I was surprised that the word disability was found to be so problematic because... That assumes that it's unproblematic here and now, and it isn't. It's um, a necessary term, it's very useful. It divides able-bodied people from people with an impairment, a lifelong or a life-changing impairment, and that's a vital category for civil rights reasons you need to um you know there was racism before we had the word racism but in order to deal with it you needed a kind of word to get behind um and you know disability is a modern word but it's slightly odd to say I think that we can't attempt this um it's ambitious it's it's very difficult to try and do this work of um looking at Disabled experience in the ancient world, but we 've already done that i mean we, we should look across, i think to women in the ancient world, slavery in the ancient world, um, all sorts of other minorities, underdogs um, the the people who didn 't have a voice in an ancient world ha- we 've managed to do that already to a certain extent there, so perhaps there 's some tips we can borrow from those attempts as well, and that that 's something. I did enjoy in this conference, there was quite a lot of switching to, um, you know, but we do this with women, we do this with um, sexuality. And I found that very healthy and helpful um, because, it, you know, we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The hard work of figuring out how on earth we do this has, to a certain extent, um, been done already. I think there is a difference with having an impairment. There is something bodily... Uh, different about you that isn't culturally uh, created. You know, there is an actual physical um, difference that you have. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think that we absolutely have to try and put these voices back into the ancient world for the relevance of classics. because I don't see how we can justify and defend studying something that, doesn't allow for very topical, very um, present um, debates to kind of create some kind of dialogue. So we need to make it work, basically.
0: That brings us to the end of this programme, but you can go to the Classics Confidential website to listen to more audio footage recorded at the workshop, including Professor Tom Shakespeare's memories of his school, Latin Lessons. You'll also find a bibliography of books, articles, and web links, if you'd like to learn more about this subject. This programme has featured the voices of Ellen Adams, Christian Lars, Leonard J. Davis, Edith Hall, Michael Squire, Stephanie Evelyn Wright, Jane Draycott, Tom Shakespeare, and me, Jessica Hughes. Thank you for listening.